Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today's episode is all about CHF medications. It's a very, very common disease. We're going to be talking a lot about it today. But like always, before we get started, remember, please go on ninjanerd.org, grab your subscription, whatever membership you would like, get your notes, illustrations, everything that you need to help you learn more about this topic. I think it really will be helpful. But Zach, first off, man, thank you for being here. How you feeling? I am cooking right now. I'm sweating balls in this office. We have a uh, somehow. I don't know how it. Like I'm not sure how it's set up, like via HVAC here. But our office is connected to a different office who controls our thermostat. Naturally, it is a. I'm I'm not being stereotypical here, but it's a room full of. Very very skinny women, middle aged. Let's just be fucking honest, man. They they're in there with fucking coats on, yeah. and they got the the heat blasting over here. I'm walking around in like underwear and no shirt. Okay, <laughs> this it's cooking over here. So it's it's unfortunate because we would love to be like, oh, let me just let me just turn this this temp down a little bit. Nope, can't do it. <laughs> we can't do it. They control it, so we're kind of at their mercy, and we're yeah, yeah we're yeah. cooking right now. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that sounds good to me. We're going to get this episode really started here. It's going to be a lot of fun, like I said. Are you ready? Let's do it, my Let's man. Let's do it then. So start off, Zach, if you would. Please tell us a little bit about the pathophysiology of CHF. And I think that really will help us with our medication approach and our under, our overall fundamental of CHF. Yeah. So CHF, basic concept, a patient has a reduction in their cardiac output. When you have a reduced cardiac output, the following can kind of result in response to that. One is it leads to this baroreceptor reflex, which activates your sympathetic nervous system. They just start pumping out norepinephrine, epinephrine into your bloodstream. On top of that, your nerves start releasing lots of norepinephrine, epinephrine. That acts on a lot of adrenergic receptors, the beta-1 receptors of the heart, you increase your heart rate, you increase your contractility. The problem with that is, is that if your heart's constantly beating at this fast rate, it's constantly contracting nonstop, the heart doesn't really get a break. And so that puts a lot of strain on the heart, at least to a lot of like cardiac remodeling. And that can really lead to a lot of decrease in left ventricular dysfunction of the heart. The other thing is that when you pump out a lot of norepinephrine, epinephrine, it also stimulates the beta receptors on the JG cells of the kidneys. That pumps out a lot of renin and activates that renin angiotensin aldosterone system as well. The other thing is that when you release not a lot of norepinephrine, epinephrine, it binds onto the alpha-1 adrenergic receptors on the arteries and the veins. That squeezes the heck out of the arteries, increases your afterload, puts a lot of stress onto that left heart. On top of that, it also squeezes the heck out of the veins, increases the preload to the actual heart. So now you get a heart that's actually filled with a ton of blood and it can't get the dang blood out because the afterload is so high. And so it just continuously puts a lot of strain on that poor heart. The second thing is that whenever you have a reduced cardiac output... Not only does it create that baroreceptor reflex, which activates your sympathetic nervous system, stimulates the JG cells of the kidneys to make renin, but poor cardiac output leads to poor renal perfusion. That directly activates the JG cells, and they start pumping out renin. That renin, then we know via the process, converts angiotensin into angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 then goes to the lungs. There's the enzyme called ACE that converts the angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. And then you got the downward spiral of, of angiotensin 2. This son of a gun, this angiotensin 2, it increases your systemic vascular resistance. It squeezes the arteries and it squeezes the veins. So if you squeeze the arteries, you increase afterload, increase the stress on the left ventricle, and start causing weakening of the heart. On top of that, squeezes the veins, increases preload, starts loading the heart with a ton of volume that it can't dang pump out. On top of that... It also causes an intense efferent arterial vasoconstriction. So you know the glomerulus, you have the afferent arterial feeding it, and then you have the efferent arterial draining it. If you squeeze the afferent arterial, you won't drain the glomerulus. And so the pressure in that glomerulus just like pumps, and it starts just banging out blood. And so that causes a massive increase in the GFR to try to help you to pee when your blood pressure is kind of in the in the, in the tuchus right now, when it's kind of like a low cardiac output. It also unfortunately leads to a lot of like proteinuria and then really thickens up that glomerular basement membrane over time increase the risk of CKD. On top of that, angiotensin 2 also tells the adrenal cortex, hey, buddy, start making aldosterone, and tells the posterior pituitary to start pumping out ADH. The combination of those two tell the kidneys to retain lots of sodium water, leads to a lot of sodium water retention, which increases your blood volume, your preload, fills that poor, weak heart with a lot of blood that can't pump out. That leads to worsening remodeling of the heart. Plus, when you get a lot of sodium and water retention, it's going to start third spacing and leading to a lot of edema. So that's another downside to this potential disease. I think the other pathophysiological concept here is that when a patient has a very low cardiac output, okay, if, if you have it having a lot of preload, you have a lot of afterload, and it's not contracting well, 
Blood is not going to get out of the heart. It's going to stretch and stretch and stretch that heart. Okay. Like the waistband of my sweatpants on, on, <laughs> on, on Thanksgiving day. <laughs> and so what happens is that really tells the ventricle, Hey, we're really stretching here. I need you to make a molecule called BMP. BMP, brain natriuretic peptide is a really interesting molecule that helps us to compensate. What it does is, it tells the angiotensin 2 that's wreaking havoc via the, all those pathways, stop doing that and blocks all the effects of angiotensin 2. So therefore decreases afterload, decreases preload, decreases ADH and aldosterone release, which inhibits sodium and water retention, actually causes you to pee out a ton of sodium and water. That's actually what we call it the natriuretic peptide. It causes natriuresis. And then it also causes the dilation of the efferent arterial, which reduces your GFR proteinuria, as well as also reduces the thickening of the GBM. So that's a cool concept there, and it can help to reduce edema. But that's one of those molecules that your body makes to try to be able to compensate for it. We'll talk about how we can actually modify that pathway, as well as the previous ones that we talked about via the sympathetic, the renangiotensin aldosterone system, and how can we modify the BMP pathway. One last concept here, though, is that... The question that you probably have is how does the increasing heart rate, the contractility, the increased preload, the increased afterload actually cause problems with the heart? What What is it? If you have a heart that's already relatively weak and you're having it beat faster, it's not getting a good diastolic period. So it's not getting a time to be able to relax and fill. Diastole is when coronary perfusion is at the maximum. If you give it a very short time, you're not perfusing that weak heart. So you're giving it less coronary perfusion. That's one problem. If you're contracting it all the time and not giving it a break to contract, it's going to tucker out. It's going to weaken. If you increase the afterload, imagine this weak heart having to pump blood out of it into the arteries and pumping it to your little toe. It's going to have to generate such high pressures that that's going to make the heart weak over time. And if you fill that poor heart with a ton of blood volume, imagine having to pump two liters versus pumping seven liters. That makes it really difficult for the heart. Over time, the heart has to remodel and accommodate to these changes. It may have to get thicker. It may have to dilate. It may undergo fibrosis. It may have a lot of inflammation. And this just causes a lot of problems, leads to decreasing, uh, kind of like, pr- actually leads to a lot of increased risk of mortality, actually, and increases the risk of a lot of other symptomatic problems like morbidity in these patients. So knowing what we can do to help to be able to oppose the sympathetic reflex, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, as well as helping to be able to improve or modulate the BMP pathway can actually change not just cardiac remodeling, but it may actually reduce the patient's mortality in this terrible disease. So that's really important. I think that'll lead us into the next part, Rob. Alrighty, awesome. So it's a pretty good chunk of information. I want to just give a quick summary that really paints the the picture, the overall theme of what's happening here. So heart failure results in reduced cardiac output that leads to sympathetic activation and renin angiotensin aldosterone system activation, resulting in the following. That that would be increased heart rate, increased contractility, increased afterload, increased preload, and then fluid retention leading to edema. Now we have to talk about the medications that can help to reverse this underlying pathophysiology that ultimately worsens heart failure. Let's go through the following nine drug categories. <laughs> That's a lot of drugs, isn't it? <laughs> He's gonna, he, we're going to breeze through this. That just gave everybody so much anxiety. No, no, they no. They literally no. just shat themselves. <laughs> nine like, nine, nine super drugs, quick. dude. I got to get to class. <laughs> Hey, maybe you're on a long drive. You got some time to kill. I pray you do. <laughs> hey, this is this is important stuff, right? You better you, know it. You better know it. You better know it. So these nine drug categories are what? Beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, angio- angiotensin receptor blockers, aldosterone antagonists, neprilysin inhibitors and ARB, known as ARNI, hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate, diuretics, ivibradin, and positive inotropes. My God. <laughs> If I said any of those wrong, Zach, please correct me. <laughs> no, man, you killed it, bro. You killed it. <laughs> but overall, Zach, we have to go over this a little bit more. We need more detail. All right? Be gentle. Don't <laughs> don't kill us here. No. We need a little bit more detail on these nine drug categories, including their mechanism of action, and then maybe some adverse drug reactions we have to be on the lookout for. Welcome to Fuller Butts. A behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. 
Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. Absolutely. Okay, first one, beta blockers. So this is a great drug class and primarily metoprolol. Remember, metoprolol succinate is going to be the most beneficial one. I remember it because from metoprolol succinate, the heart sucks. So it's going to be better to utilize that one as comparison to what's called metoprolol tartarate. So there is two different formulations. The other one is carvedilol, which actually there has been some literature to support that that might be one of the actual most beneficial beta blockers. And the last one, bisoprolol. Don't commonly use that one too often. So I can't speak to that one. But again, carvedilol, metoprolol, going to be the most commonly utilized ones here. Now, mechanism of action, we already know. They're going to block the sympathetic activation process, or they're going to block at least the sympathetic you know, cascade. So they're going to block norepinephrine at the beta-1 receptors. And so that's going to reduce heart rate. That's going to reduce the contractility of the heart, and that's going to reduce the left ventricular remodeling. That's a beautiful thing. So it's going to prolong the actual filling process, allow for a longer diastole, and then make the heart not have to work as hard constantly. Poor thing's been working hard. On top of that, here's the other reason I think carvedilol might be more beneficial in comparison to metoprolol because it has alpha-1 blockade. So it can actually reduce the systemic vascular resistance of the arteries and improve forward flow out of the heart. On top of that, it also can, again, uh, cause alpha-1 blockade on the veins, which may venodilate and provide, again, a little bit of reduced venous return and drop the preload. So that's actually pretty cool because it can actually, again, reduce left ventricular remodeling by reducing afterload and reducing preload. The other cool thing with beta blockers is you block the beta-1 receptors on the JG cells of the kidney. So you actually somewhat reduce at least the intensity of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So that's actually pretty cool as well. One of the things that I think was really confusing for me, though, Rob, is when I was actually like first starting off in the ICU, we would put patients who had heart failure or they were post MI, we put them, if they have a reduced ejection fraction, like someone walking around with an EF of 25%, you would put them on a beta blocker. And I would be like, why in the world, if they were stable, again, they had to be more of a stable patient. And I'd be like, why in the world would you put someone on a beta blocker that has a low EF? Wouldn't it drop the contractility and then actually cause their EF to drop, which would actually worsen their reduced heart uh, ejection fraction and their heart failure? And that actually can be true. Transiently, you're, you are reducing contractility. As long as the patient isn't decompensating, you actually will see a transient drop in the EF. But then over time, as you allow for longer diastolic filling, as you allow for less work of the heart, reduced oxygen consumption and demand, you will see the EF actually go up. I had a patient. It was interesting. Two years ago, they came in with an EF of 20, 25%. And then to just not too long ago, came back EF. They've been on beta blockers and they've been on them doing very well, complying with them. Their EF went up to 50, 55%. So it's very impressive to be able to see that kind of process. So, so in this, in this situation, then how long do you think they would need to be on this type of drug regimen? Generally, these beta blockers, you're going to be on them for pretty much a lifetime. Unless you had developed a lot of adverse drug reactions from them, really, you're going to be on these beta blockers. It's going to be one of those frontline medications that you'll utilize in heart failure. The only time I would actually be relatively careful with these is if a patient had a decompensated heart failure. So in other words, they had an acute heart failure kind of exacerbation. Don't do beta blockers. Decrease their dose. Hold them. I would not do that because you have a very strong risk of dropping their blood pressure and putting them into cardiogenic shock because you're taking away their cardiac output. But but to be more specific, I mean, like if they're on this beta blocker and for the whole concept of contractility, the person who had 25% up to 55%, how, like, was that a very long time? Like, what, what's that timeline like? Oh, that, that's a great question. I think that that time frame of where their EF will improve, I think is variable. I think it depends upon the patient's disease process. Um, I also think it depends upon how compliant what they are with the medications. I think, you know, for the most part, you should see a generous actual improvement in the EF over at least, I think, six months to a year, but it will take some time and it can actually be very, relatively variable from yeah. patient to patient. Do you remember what it was for that specific patient? So it could have been 
been actually more improved than when I saw them. They ended up coming in. They had an echo about two years ago. Um, and then it was about 20, 25%. And then they came in again, two late, two years later when I saw them and their EF actually happened to improve 50 to 50, 50 to 55. Could it have been 50 to 55 a year before that? You'll never know. I right. Guess, unless they right. have a repeat echo. That's, but, you know, regardless, that's still really impressive. Yeah. That was actually pretty cool. And so it is a really important thing to know that yes, you will potentially have a transient drop, but over time you'll see an improvement in the patient's ejection fraction, which is actually super beneficial. The other thing I think we'd be very, very careful of with these drugs is if a patient's had a heart rate of like two, don't put them on the beta beta blocker <laughs> because you're going to drop their heart rate and they're going to become asystolic. So, so don't do that. So watch out for any bradycardia. If the patient's relatively bradycardic, I would actually decrease their dose or maybe hold it. Another thing is if they have decompensated heart failure, it's actually best to maybe decrease the dose, put them on a very, very low dose or actually completely hold it just because you have a risk of dropping their cardiac output enough that it actually could make them super hypotensive and put them into shock. The other thing is, especially with like carvedilol and high doses of metoprolol, bisoprolol, they can hit those beta-2 receptors in the bronchioles and cause bronchospasm. And then lastly, they can blunt the sympathetic reflex in patients who are hypoglycemic and cause them to become unaware of their hypoglycemia, which is a problematic issue. So be careful of that in patients with diabetes. All right. That's the sympathetic blockade, right? So that's one that we talked about. Now we got two more kind of blockades that we got to talk about here. The next one is the blockade of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So you have three drug categories here, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, aldosterone antagonists. The drug names for the ACE inhibitors, they're the prills, the lisinopril, the captopril, enalapril, benzopril, all those prills. ARBs, the Zartans, the Candazartan, Valzartan, Lazartan, all the Zartans. Aldosterone antagonists, these are usually the, the, the owns, like spironolactone, Epler known. These are some interesting drugs as well. So how do they work? Okay. ACE inhibitors, ARBs, relatively the same action, at least the same endpoint. I will actually could re, you know, rephrase that. ACE inhibitors inhibit the angiotensin converting enzyme. That leads to less angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 conversion. We have less angiotensin 2. If you have less angiotensin 2, what do you have less of? Less arterial vasoconstriction, less venoconstriction, less efferent arterial vasoconstriction as well, and less ADH and aldosterone production. That leads to a significant reduction in afterload, a significant reduction in preload that leads to a significant reduction in the actual sodium and water retention as well. And it also improves the glomerular blood pressure. All right. So you'll decrease the glomerular blood pressure, which unfortunately, yes, may mildly drop the GFR, but it will reduce proteinuria and reduce the thickening of the glomerular basement membrane, which is a cool concept. Okay. That's the basic function of the ACEs and the ARBs. The aldosterone antagonists. These are really interesting drugs. They will block aldosterone. That means that if you have ADH present, less, less sodium and water is resorbed. That means that you have less preload. That leads to less ventricular remodeling. That also is going to less the, lead to less of the actual retention or the edema effect. What's really cool about all of these drugs ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and aldosterone antagonists is they've all been shown to reduce remodeling of the heart, which reduces mortality. That is a beneficial concept, and they're usually an add-on. So as I talked about before, usually patients will be on a beta blocker. They may also be on top of that either an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. You can't put them on both. Remember that, guys. You can't be on both. It has to be one or the other. So it's a beta blocker plus an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. And then you can add on spironolactone if they actually can tolerate that one. So that's a really cool concept. One thing I would also consider is if their renal function is really good, they're not having any kind of creatinine bump because we'll talk about this in a little bit, but ACE inhibitors and ARBs can actually cause your creatinine to go up a little bit. And they also may cause a little bit of hyperkalemia. As long as the patient isn't super hyperkalemic and their renal function is normal, spironolactone is a pretty good drug to add on. So I would actually consider that one because it reduces mortality. We want to give drugs that reduce mortality, okay? All right. What should you be careful of and watch out with these drugs? ACE inhibitors, ARBs, they both can cause, again, hyperkalemia because they actually inhibit or block the aldosterone effect downstream because if you drop angiotensin 2, you drop aldosterone production. They also can, again, reduce your glomerular blood pressure, which, yes, may actually slightly drop your GFR and lead to less creatinine excretion. So your creatinine may actually go up. And also, um, they are teratogenic. So I got to be actually very careful about giving this to patients who are pregnant. So that's another thing to think about with ACE inhibitors and ARBs. With ACE inhibitors by themselves, be careful. One of the things that you inhibit ACE enzyme, which actually helps to be able to break down bradykinins. If I don't break down bradykinins, they build up and cause vasodilation, increase capillary permeability, and cause angioedema and coughing. Sometimes it's really nasty dry cough. So you may want to consider that if a patient has these symptoms or they have COPD asthma and they wouldn't tolerate that cough or angioedema, try an ARB instead. 
The last one is aldosterone antagonist. They also may bump that K up because again, you're, you're blocking aldosterone. And if you block aldosterone, that leads to less of the actual potassium excretion and more potassium builds up. Plus, if you use spironolactone, it actually blocks the androgens as well. So you may get the, you may get the moves. So watch out for gynecomastia as well. <laughs> the moves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next drug category. So we talked about the sympathetic blockade. We talked about the renin angiotensin aldosterone system blockade. The other one is I said, what, how can we modulate the BNP, right? Cause the patients were like, they're, you know, they're, they're the ventricles or they were like at the waistband of my sweatpants during Thanksgiving, right? How can we actually modulate those? And then if you think about it, it would really be, I want to increase BNP, right? Like that would make sense, right? I want to increase BNP because I'm going to pee out lots of sodium and water. I'm going to block angiotensin too. Sounds like a good concept. Well, here's what we can do. You can actually give something well, there is kind of a generic drug like Nazirati, but there's a drug that's actually been shown to be a little bit more beneficial for these patients. And you actually may reduce mortality. And this is actually a combo. It's called an ARNI. All this is, is a combo of two drugs. One is an ARB. We already know those. Those are the Zartans. Valzartan is the most common. And the other one for the ARNI is a neprilysin inhibitor. And that's usually a drug called Secubitril. Now, this combo, also known as Entresto, Secubitril Valzartan, is a really cool drug. There's two concepts behind it. The neprilysin inhibitor. We already know how ARBs work. We already know that they help to be able to, again, do what? They block angiotensin 2. So everything that we talked about just a little bit ago with the ARBs, we're going to have that effect with this drug. But we get an additional effect, which is cool. We get the neprilysin inhibitor. What this does is there, when BMP is actually produced, it's naturally broken down in our body by a drug called neprilysin. So then you have less the BMP available to be able to produce the natriuretic effects and block the angiotensin 2 effects. Because of that, if I give a drug that actually blocks the neprilysin, it won't break down the BMP. BMP will be increased and I'll allow for more inhibition of angiotensin 2 and I'll pee out more sodium and water. What's the actual benefit of this? Well, then do everything that's opposite of angiotensin 2, my friends. I'm not going to constrict my arterioles. I'm not going to constrict the veins. Therefore, I'll reduce afterload. I'll reduce preload. I'll inhibit the ADH and aldosterone production. I'll have less vasoconstriction. I'll have more vasodilation. I also won't reabsorb as much sodium and water. Instead, I'll pee lots of sodium and water out. And I'll reduce my sodium and water retention. I'll reduce my preload. Wow. Plus, if I block angiotensin 2 at the efferent arterial, it may cause a little bit of a vasodilatory effect, improve the actual glomerular blood pressure, and, and actually decrease the GFR, but reduce proteinuria, maybe even reduce a little bit of the, what else? The thickening of the GBM. So that actually is a pretty cool concept here, is I can actually increase BMP. So I can block sympathetic, block angiotensin aldosterone system, and increase the BMP pathway. Now, why would I use this as an alternative? If a patient's on a beta blocker, if they're on a, um, let's say, ACE inhibitor or an ARB, and they're on the max dose, okay, and they're still symptomatic, or they can't tolerate an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, they've been on and they can't tolerate it, this is a good drug to add on, okay? So I would add that on if they've been maxed on their ACE inhibitor or ARB, or they can't tolerate it, okay, and they're still symptomatic throw this drug on. It's actually pretty beneficial. What do you got to watch out for? All the same things with an ARB, okay? All the same thing that you get with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, you get here. So believe it or not, you actually do get the bradykinin-induced cough and angioedema, so be careful with that. You will get the hyper-K. You will get the increased creatinine. One thing to be cognizant of is that you get a more powerful vasodilatory effect, and so because that, you may reduce afterload a lot, which will help to improve forward flow out of the heart, but it can drop the patient's blood pressure a little bit more. So just be cognizant of that when you put this drug on these patients. Okay. These are the drugs that are working to, again, reduce mortality, my friends. All the other drugs that we're going to talk about from this point are kind of going to be like little miscellaneous ones that we're going to add on for maybe symptom control or maybe a specific patient population is going to be benefiting more from this one. Or you're at a refractory point and these are just drugs that are basically kind of like the last line we can add these on. So what are those drugs? All right. The next one is a, a combo. It's called hydralazine and isosorbidinitrate. This is basically a combo of an arterial dilator, so hydralazine, so it's going to reduce your afterload, improve forward flow out of the heart. And then uh, isosorbidinitrate is a venodilator that's going to reduce preload and reduce the overfilling of the heart. That sounds pretty attractive, right? With this drug, 
the real true benefit is if a patient either can't tolerate an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, maybe they're not a good candidate for the Secubitril Valzartan combo, um, or they're African American. And I know this seems weird, but it, these patient populations actually have been shown there's actual benefit that there's actually more benefit and maybe even a slight reduction in mortality of hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate in African Americans with heart failure. So that might be a patient population to consider adding this drug on. Okay. So if you have a patient who's African American who has heart failure, this may be a good drug combo, or they just could not tolerate or they had contraindications to an ACE inhibitor ARB. And likely if you have a contraindication to ACE inhibitors and ARB, you probably have a contraindication to the Secubitril and Valzartan combo since they have similar ADRs. Okay. What should you watch out for with these? Well, they arterial dilate. So that's going to cause a reflex tachycardia. They also venodilate. So watch out for orthostasis. People start dropping down when they get up out of bed. You don't want that. All right. Next one. This one is a drug I can honestly say I've never seen, and I don't know if you'll ever really prescribe them, okay? It's called ivabradine. Ivabradine is this weird kind of like sodium channel blocker. And what ivabradine does is if you inhibit these sodium channels, it really only does it in the SA node, and that's weird. And so if it inhibits the SA node, sodium doesn't enter into the SA node. The SA node doesn't fire as fast. And so it drops the heart rate a little bit. It kind of slows the depolarization. If you reduce the heart rate, it allows the ventricles to fill a little bit better. And it gives them a longer time to be in diastole. Why is that good? That means that you improve coronary perfusion to the actual poor, weak muscle. On top of that, because it actually helps to reduce the conduction in the SA node, it does has no effect on the AV node, so it won't cause any kind of AV node block kind of conduction. It won't block the ventricular conduction. It has no effect on your blood pressure, so it won't drop your blood pressure. So it seems like an attractive drug in these particular scenarios, right? However, here's why you probably don't see it that often. There is a very specific criteria. You only use this in heart failure patients that have been refractory to an ACE inhibitor or a beta blocker, plus an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, if they couldn't tolerate that, an ARNI, plus a aldosterone antagonist, okay, or hydralazine isosorbide dinitrate if they're African-American, or again, they couldn't tolerate the ACE inhibitor ARB. And then here's one more thing. On top of that, you have to have normal sinus rhythm. Tell me how common you think it's going to be for a patient who has terrible CHF to not to actually be in normal sinus rhythm. It's pretty uncommon. You're not going to see that too often. But if they do and their heart rate's greater than 70 beats per minute, they may tolerate this drug. But that's not it. On top of that, you have to be maxed out on your beta blocker or you just can't tolerate the beta blocker because you have t- terrible adverse reactions. So when you think about it, I have a braiding. Again, we only give to patients who are refractory to the classic therapy, the beta blockers, the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system blockers, the BMP modulator, the hydralazine isosorbide dinitrate, and they have to have a normal sinus rhythm with a heart rate greater than 70 and be maxed out on beta blockers or not, that won't tolerate a beta blocker. So relatively uncommon that you're going to get this drug. The other thing is that it can drop your heart rate a little bit. So just watch out for a little bit of bradycardia. But here's the other thing. You got to avoid inpatients of AFib. It actually may worsen their AFib. So that's why it's likely a drug that you won't see because a lot of patients who have CHF likely have some degree of AFib or arrhythmia because as your EF reduces, you have increased risk of these arrhythmias. Yes, more likely ventricular arrhythmias, but you're definitely going to have a high risk of AFib or atrial flutter. Okay, beautiful. Next drug category is called diuretics. Diuretics are great drugs, but they have no effect whatsoever on mortality. So ivabradine won't affect mortality. Diuretics won't really affect mortality as well. What do diuretics do? They just help to excrete more sodium and water into the urine, which reduces the amount of sodium and water in your vasculature, which reduces the amount of preload, which reduces the congestion of the heart, which reduces a lot of the edematous complications. If you can't pump blood out of the heart and you're filling it with a lot of fluid, right? Where's it going to back up? It's going to back up out of the right heart and cause peripheral edema, or it's going to back up out of the left heart into the lungs and cause pulmonary edema. That causes symptoms. It causes big old tree trunk legs. It also is going to cause very terrible difficulty breathing like dyspnea, orthopnea. You can't lay down flat, hypoxia, all of these things. So in those situations, diuretics are a great drug to go ahead and give because they're going to get rid of a lot of that fluid. And you know what else is cool is I find that if a patient's hypertensive and they're not really responding to antihypertensives, 
Give them a lube diuretic if they have poor CHF and they have a lot of edema because you actually get me get a lot of that volume overload and that actually could reduce their blood pressure. So it's really just more of a symptomatic benefit, no mortality benefit with this drug. Okay. So this would be your lube diuretics like furosemide, bumetanide, torsemide. And then you have your thiazides, which are like your hydrochlorothiazide, your chlorothiazide, and your metolazone. You know what I like to do, Rob? I like to actually combine these. If I have a patient who comes into the ICU, they have heart failure. They have a lot of pulmonary edema, a lot of peripheral edema. They've definitely a pure volume overloaded and they have a reduced ejection fraction. I love to give furosemide and a thiazide diuretic. They're actually really good because it can augment the diuresis and really help these patients to get rid of a lot of sodium and water, which I actually find to be pretty beneficial. So consider that, especially the most common one, furosemide and metolazone is a very common co- combo that you can actually give in these patients. Just be cautious. When you give these drugs, you do have the possibility, especially with thiazides, to drop their sodium, to drop their K. So watch out for that K. What drug could you actually throw onto these patients if they're, you're diuresing them that actually may bump up their K? Aldosterone antagonists, because you know what they do? They also help you to diurese, but they retain potassium. So that actually could be a good thing to counteract the hypokalemia from a furosemide or thiazidoretic. Uh, watch out for metabolic alkalosis. They cause proton excretion. Watch out for hyperuricemia because they can actually inhibit uric acid excretion. And at high doses of the actual lube diuretic, they can cause ototoxicity. So watch them ears. Okay. All right. We gave the drugs that block the sympathetic. We gave the drugs that block the brain angiotensin aldosterone system. We gave the drugs that are actually going to increase BMP. Then we gave the ones that may have potential benefit in African-Americans with heart failure, hydralazine, isosorbide nitrate. We gave the ivabradine and the refractory. Who's on? Beta blockers maxed or contraindicated. Normal sinus greater than 70. We gave the diuretics for symptom control. What's the last category that I want you guys to think about? Positive inotropic medications. So think about it this way. We've given drugs that can help to be able to try to improve cardiac output by reducing contractility, reducing heart rate, reducing afterload, reducing preload. What if I gave a drug that just squeezed the heck out of the heart and it actually worked to just pump blood out of the heart? That may be beneficial. So what are those drugs? Digoxin, baby. (laughs) I love it. That came out of nowhere. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely DIG is is an interesting drug. The other ones would be dobutamine and milrinone. So with these drugs... Digoxin is likely going to be one that you'll see more commonly, especially in the outpatient and even in the inpatient setting. What does it do? It's a heck of a mechanism. It's a cardiac glycoside. So it inhibits sodium potassium ATPases on multiple cells of the body. So then what happens is because of that, you actually cause less of the sodium to be pumped out of the cell and less potassium to be pumped into the cell. If less sodium is pumped out of the cell, more sodium retains in the cardiac myocytes. That means that you lead to less sodium calcium exchange. That means that less sodium and less calcium are being pushed out of the cell. That means more calcium stays inside of the cell then. If more calcium stays in the cardiac myocytes, it starts binding on to the troponin, leading to the, again, activation of the myofilaments and leading to a very powerful increase in contractility. And then if you increase contractility, you're going to increase your stroke volume and you're going to increase your cardiac output. What was the problem in patients with heart failure? They likely had a reduced cardiac output. This would definitely be something that you can consider in a patient who has a heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. What else is cool, though? With this drug, it has no effect really on the afterload. It has no effect on the preload. But here's another cool thing. It actually stimulates the vagal nerve endings, which actually leads to more acetylcholine onto the AV node. If I have more acetylcholine released onto the AV node, that's actually going to reduce AV node conduction, drop the heart rate, allow for a longer diastole. And that actually may allow for better coronary perfusion, allow for better ventricular filling and improve cardiac output. So you see why this could be potentially a beneficial drug. Who do we give it to? Again, patients have been on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. They've been on a beta blocker or for whatever reason, they couldn't be on an ACE inhibitor ARB and they're on an ARNI or they couldn't be on any, any of the ACE inhibitors, ARNIs, ARBs. So they had to be on hydralazine or isosorbide nitrate. They fulfilled the category for an aldosterone antagonist. All right. You treated them symptomatically for <laughs> with diuretics. Then if they're still refractory to all of that medical therapy, then you can add on digoxin. So it's a lot of things that you got to go to before you usually put digoxin on. So that's one of the interesting things about this drugs. Now, one of the things I also find, and I actually like to use this, if I have a patient who is in AFib in the ICU, they're in AFib with a rapid ventricular reduction, and they also have heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, I think this is not a bad drug to actually add on to help with rate control, as well as really help to increase the contractility of the heart. So think about that. 
One of the other drugs is going to be dobutamine and milrinone. Now, dobutamine is actually a beta agonist. That means beta 1 and beta 2. If you stimulate the beta 1 receptors in the heart, you increase heart rate, increase contractility, increase cardiac output. Zach, I thought we were supposed to block this though, right? Weren't we supposed to block this in patients with heart failure? Yeah, but guess what? If a patient is in cardiogenic shock, you don't give a dang. You need to give them dobutamine because this is likely the only indication where you're going to use this. You're not going to be giving this to the patient out on the street or in the, you know, in the, at, at home. It's an IV medication that has to have very, very close monitoring. So this is one of those situations where a patient has acute heart failure and they start really dropping their cardiac output and they start becoming hypotensive and shocky and start actually stop perfusing organs. Then what we can do is we can try to recruit that myocardium and really try to generate a better bang for our buck and push more blood out of the heart. Then we need to try to save them. And so dobutamine may be a good drug that is utilized in cardiogenic shock. Here's another cool thing. Not only does it bang blood out of the heart, it also helps to act on the beta-2 receptors on the arteries that vasodilates. If you vasodilate, you reduce afterload, and that does help to improve forward flow. So I guess the benefit that you can't think about this is, is that you won't actually have, again, this increased afterload with this drug. You'll reduce the afterload, which will improve the forward flow. And on top of that, you'll squeeze the heart and have it beat faster, which will improve blood flow out of the heart. But again, not something that you're going to do for a patient with chronic heart failure. It's usually going to be a patient who has chronic heart failure, and then they develop an acute CHF exacerbation, and they're in cardiogenic shock. That would be the indication for this drug. The last one is milrinone, and it's the same thing. Milrinone is a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor. What the heck does that mean? It acts on the cardiac muscle and inhibits the phosphodiesterases. These basically break down cyclic AMP. If I inhibit it, it doesn't break down cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP in the, the cardiac muscle increases. That activates lots of protein kinase A's. That phosphorylates all those calcium channels. Calcium floods into the actual cardiac muscle cell and increases what? the amount of contraction of the myofilaments. You start increasing contractility and banging blood out of the heart. That's a cool concept there. It doesn't really have much of an effect on the the actual uh, heart rate directly. But also on the smooth muscle, phosphodiesterases are present. So on the card, on the actual arterial smooth muscle, we inhibit the phosphodiesterases. That leads to increased cyclic AMP in the smooth muscle. Here's where it's weird. If you increase cyclic AMP in smooth muscle, that activates the protein kinase A, which actually phosphorylates myosin light chain kinases. When you phosphorylate these puppies, you inhibit them. They don't phosphorylate the myofilaments, and then you don't contract the muscle. You relax the actual smooth muscle, and then if you relax the smooth muscle, what happens to the arteries? They vasodilate. You drop the afterload, and therefore, you'll improve forward flow. So with dobutamine, you increase heart rate contractility and then reduce afterload which improves forward flow. Milrinone increases contractility primarily and reduces afterload to improve forward flow. So these are the two drugs that I would give if a patient is in acute heart failure going into cardiogenic shock due to an exacerbation of their underlying CHF. Does that make sense, Rob? Makes perfect sense. And that's okay. a lot of drugs right there. Yeah, it is a lot of drugs. And I think that's the big thing to think about here is that we won't be utilizing all of these drugs. It's really a stepwise fashion. There is another one. I just hate this dang drug. Dopamine. You could potentially utilize this in acute heart failure that puts a patient into cardiogenic shock. I just don't like that drug. So I'd rather use something else in that potential scenario. But you can, if you want to think about that, yes, you can use that. One last thing to mention here is what are some potential things to watch out for when you put patients on positive inotropes? Digoxin, it stimulates the vagal nerve endings. And so because of that, it has this weird cholinergic effect on the GI system and on the eyes. And for some reason, it causes like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, and then on top of that, it may actually cause like a blurry yellow vision, which is weird. I don't know exactly how that actually happens, but that's something to think about. The other thing is that it inhibits sodium potassium pumps on multiple areas, especially in the heart. If you inhibit those pumps, you cause a lot of positive ions to stay inside of the, the cells. So that really brings the resting membrane potential from like negative 70 all the way up. You may bring it very, very high. So it increases the resting membrane potential and makes these cells super excitable, which increases the risk of like arrhythmias, especially like torsadsta points. So be careful with that. Also, if you inhibit those pumps, you don't pump potassium into the cell. So you don't allow for potassium to get pushed from the blood into the cells. And so it builds up inside of the blood so you can get hyperkalemia. But on the reverse end, if a patient has hypokalemia, guess what? 
K, potassium, and digoxin kind of battle at the sodium potassium pumps. If you have less potassium, you have less kind of battling of the digoxin at the sodium potassium pumps. And so digoxin hits those pumps even harder, which means you get more of a profound digoxin effect, which can lead to digoxin toxicity. So be careful with that. So monitor for hyper-K as a complication, but avoid hypo-K to prevent digoxin toxicity. The next thing is that digoxin can actually... Uh, sometimes not be cleared as well if you take it with a couple other drugs. Uh, one of those is verapamil. Stay away from using digoxin with verapamil or amiodarone because they inhibit the clearance of it out of the body. So then digoxin may be at higher levels and you start, might start seeing more complications. And the last thing is don't give, <laughs> I, I, I'd be careful. I wouldn't say don't give, but be very careful giving a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker with digoxin because you could brady them down and make them a little bit more bradycardic. So be careful of that. Dobetamine and milrinone, the big things to watch out for is dobetamine causes way more direct tachycardia. So you're going to see way more tachycardia with dobetamine than you will with milrinone. But do realize with milrinone, you're reducing the afterload. So you dilate the vessels. So you may see a little bit of reflex tachycardia. But I would remember you're going to see way more of that with dobutamine. The other thing is that if you stimulate the heart nonstop on this drug, we don't really try to keep patients off of these drugs for a long period of time because if you stimulate the heart nonstop, you can actually worsen their ejection fraction over time and actually cause them to go into an acute stress response called Takatsuba cardiomyopathy. And that can really, really weaken the heart. So be careful of that. The other thing is that dobutamine and milrone are vasodilators. So yes, they do increase contractility and they pump more blood out of the heart, which you would think increased blood pressure. But Rob, blood pressure is dependent upon cardiac output and what else? Systemic vascular resistance. <laughs> Absolutely. So if they if they increase their cardiac output, yes, that may inc- increase blood pressure. But guess what else they do? They decrease systemic vascular resistance because they dilate. And so because of that, they actually may drop their blood pressure, which seems counterintuitive, but you have to remember that. So if patients become hypotensive, you just got to be careful. You may have to give them some other drug to squeeze those arteries a little bit. So sometimes it's not, not uncommon to be on dobutamine or milrinone plus norepinephrine. So consider that. And then the last thing is milrinone is renally excreted. So be very careful in patients who have underlying renal failure. You may actually cause it to accumulate. That's another thing to think about. But Rob, we talked about all nine drugs. And I want to just maybe make this a little bit worse, but what happens if I want to add on just one more category? What about our renin inhibitor like Alice Chiron? <laughs> we See, that's an interesting concept. I always, when I was in school, I really thought that that was going to be like, like just a big hitter. I thought it'd be such a great right? drug. Like in my opinion, you block you block the source. You, yeah, you, you block stop the kidneys it, right? from creating renin. You, yeah. Right? Wouldn't that? But we just never give it. Why is it just I, not I don't, a good drug? I, I don't know if the studies panned out on it. Wow, I don't know, okay. but we just don't give it. Yeah. It, which is it really cool. Thought. Yeah. No, it was one of the first things when I was in school, I actually went up to one of my uh, my pharmacology professors and I yeah. was like, I was like, why isn't Alice Chiron like a good drug that we can actually utilize? Because it just stops everything at the source. And right. she said, we just don't have enough you know, evidence on it. And it just doesn't seem to be beneficial, hmm. which is weird. I mean, hey, you got nine other categories. So I know I, you get enough, right? You're not running out of drugs anytime <laughs> soon. Yeah, I know. So that, that's just an interesting thought. Cool. Yeah, it is. All right, Zach. So. That was pretty cool. But overall, I am worried the audience may need a little bit more of a systematic fashion to move through these medications in a real stepwise fashion. So how do you how do you propose we do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, we did talk about a lot of drugs and it's probably hard to remember. Wait, which one do I go with first and all that? So I'm going to take you through like how we utilize, you know, medical therapy or kind of a goal directed medical therapy in patients who have chronic heart failure. So we utilize the New York Heart Association kind of classification or class you know, categorization. So there's A, B, C, and D. So if a patient is in New York Heart Association class A, which I'm going to go from this point, I'm just going to say class A, class B, class C, class D, but you know, it's a part of that New York Heart Association category. For class A, we usually look at patients who have risk factors for heart failure. So they have hypertension, right? But they don't have any absolute structural heart disease on their echo. So they don't have a left ventricular hypertrophy. They don't have a dilated ventricle or anything like that. Um, they also have no symptoms. So in those patients, if they don't have an actual kind of like problem with symptomatology, structural heart disease, but they do have risk factors for heart failure, such as hypertension, start with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. That's the first one. Okay. So class A, ACE inhibitors or an ARB, one or the other. Class B, the patient has a lot of risk factors for heart failure. Maybe they have hypertension. 
Now you're starting to see structural heart disease. You're starting to see cardiac remodeling. That's not a good thing if I'm seeing cardiac remodeling. So if I'm starting to see things like left ventricular hypertrophy or dilated cardiomyopathy, but I don't have any symptoms, I need to start giving drugs that reduce remodeling. Beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, those were the drugs that were really beneficial, right? So I'm going to give, continue, if a patient was already on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, which they were in class A, for class B, they should still be on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. All I'm going to do is add on a beta blocker. Adding on even more to that, beta blockers would definitely be more advantageous if a patient just had an MI or if they have coronary artery disease or they have a low EF. So this is also going to be a great thing because we talked about how beta blockers can increase EF over time. So again, class A, you have risk factors for heart heart failure like hypertension, no structural heart disease, no symptoms, ACE inhibitors or ARB. Class B, you have no symptoms, but you have structural heart diseases that you're starting to see. And on top of that, they do have risk factors for heart failure like hypertension. ACE inhibitor or an ARB, and then add on a beta blocker, especially advantageous if you're post-MI, CAD, or have a low EF. Class C, these are the patients that have all positive. They're positive for symptoms. So they're having fatigue. They're having dyspnea. They're having paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. They're having orthopnea. They're having edema. They're having all of these particular problems. They have structural heart disease that's present on their echo, left ventricular hypertrophy. They have dilated cardiomyopathy. They have a low ejection fraction. And they have a ton of risk factors for heart failure, such as hypertension. You already have the ACE inhibitor or the ARB. You already have the beta blockers. Then what do you do? Add on the aldosterone antagonists. Aldosterone antagonists, why? Because they have been shown to reduce cardiac remodeling and reduce the actual mortality. So I want to give drugs that reduce mortality. So ACE inhibitors or an ARB, a beta blocker, and then an aldosterone antagonist. After that, if a patient is not tolerant to an ACE inhibitor or an ARB because they have a contraindication or they're maxed out on their ACE inhibitor and they're still symptomatic, switch them from an ACE inhibitor or an ARB to an ARNI, okay? So that would be the Secubitril-Valzartan combo. It's going to be beneficial, okay? Then if the patient is symptomatic and you've already added these drugs on and changed them up accordingly, what else could I give to reduce edema, reduce a lot of the fluid overload states? Diuretics, okay? So that's class C. Class C is, again, ACE inhibitors or an ARB, beta blocker, you can switch them to an ARNI if they're maxed on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or they're intolerant to it. And then on top of that, again, aldosterone antagonists should always be added on diuretics for symptom control. For class D, okay, this is usually a patient who is refractory to all the medical therapy that we just mentioned in class C. So they're symptomatic still. They still have structural heart disease with a reduced EF, left ventricular hypertrophy, dilation of their ventricles. They have risk factors for heart failure, such as hypertension, but they're still refractory to everything. So they, at this point, they're on an ACE inhibitor or they're on an ARB or they're on neither of those and they're on ARNI. They're on a beta blocker. They're on aldosterone antagonist. And on top of that, we have them on diuretics for symptom control. If they're on all of those, then what do we do? Then we go to the next step. The next step is that you can consider another drug category, like ivabradine. Remember I told you that this is like usually you don't commonly utilize this one, but if you give ivabradine, what do you need to actually be considered? That the patient would already be on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or for some reason an ARNI. They're on a beta blocker maxed out or What else? They have a contraindication to the beta blocker. They're an aldosterone antagonist. They're on diuretics for symptom control. Now, if they're either maxed out on a beta blocker or they have a contraindication to that, their normal sinus with a rate greater than 70, you can add on ivabradine. Okay. And no AFib, right? And no AFib. You can have no AFib. You got to be normal sinus puppies. All right. You got to have normal sinus rhythm. Not common, but possible. And then If the patient still has a reduced ejection fraction, they're on all of the following drugs. Man, I feel like we're saying it again. ACE inhibitor or an ARB. They can't tolerate that or maxed out on it. You can switch them to an ARNI. They're on a beta blocker. They're on aldosterone antagonist. They're on diuretics for symptom control. They're on ivibrating because they're maxed out on their beta blocker. They're contraindicated to it. But they still have a reduced EF and they're still symptomatic. Digoxin. That's the next drug that you can add in this situation. There's one last thing that we didn't talk about, and you could technically slip it in to the um, the actual the class C, and that is if patients are African American, they're intolerant to the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs, and the ARNIs. You could do what? 
hydralazine and isosorbide nitrate. So don't forget that as well. That's a little one that you can slip into class C. That is how we would treat the stepwise fashion though for uh, kind of your chronic heart failure. Now there's a different, there's another animal though. That is if a patient who has chronic heart failure decides to stop taking their meds. All right. So they're just going to go cold turkey. I'm not doing any of these dang things. I hate the pills. I'm done. Or they end up infarcting their left ventricle. All right. So they just end up with a massive MI or they end up in acute renal failure and volume overloaded now. So their renal, their kidneys stop working and then they just fill up with fluid because they can't pee it out. Or they decide to do the booger sugar or they decide to decide to stop taking their medications and their blood pressure just like shoots up through the sky and they're in a hypertensive crisis. Or they blow a mitral valve or they blow an aortic valve. These are things that can put a patient who has chronic heart failure into a very severe acute heart failure exacerbation, which is they're at risk of cardiogenic shock. So think about this. You stop taking your medications. What's going to happen to your cardiac output? It's going to plummet. You have an MI. So now you have a patient who has a heart failure with a reduced EF and they had very little myocardium that was contracting anyway. And you just decide to freck out the rest of the piece of the myocardium. Now it's going to drop their cardiac output even more. They have acute renal failure and they were already having difficulty pumping out three or four liters of blood. Now you put in five more liters of blood. Cardiac output's going to drop. You make their blood pressure, which used to be 140 over, you know, let's say 140 over 90 for these patients. Now it's 220 over 120. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. For whatever reason. Imagine that. Now the arterial system, it, the blood pressure is so high. That left ventricle is going to start crying because now it's got to generate a pressure to push blood out against a blood pressure of 220 over 120. Okay. That's terrible. Your cardiac output's going to drop. And then if your mitral valve blows or your aortic valve blows, all the blood that you're trying to pump out, guess what? Just going to come right back into the heart. So these are problematic issues. And what's the overarching theme is that the cardiac output, which was once mildly decreased or moderately decreased, it's going to plummet down into the depths of the earth. Okay. And you're not going to get any blood out of the heart. Because of that, if the patient can't generate blood out of their heart, guess what's supposed to be running through our blood vessels? Blood. Your blood pressure is going to drop and you're going to become extremely hypotensive and at risk of cardiogenic shock. Okay. Now, on top of that, if blood isn't getting out of the heart into the blood vessels, guess where it decides to go? It decides to go backwards and likely into the lungs. And then you start filling the lungs with tons of fluid and cause massive pulmonary edema. So the complications that you'll see with this is that the patients will have filled up lungs with fluid and very little of the fluid in their blood vessels and stuck in their heart. So they'll be hypotensive. They'll be in cardiogenic shock and then filled with fluid in their lungs. This is the terrible kind of like cold and wet type of situation that you can see with these heart failure patients. So what in the world can I do to help them? Now, one thing I can do is try to prevent any more blood from coming back to the heart or at least reduce it a little bit. So that's where I can do diuretics. I can try to get rid of a lot of the excess fluid. I can do nitroglycerin because that's a venodilator. This is not a medication, but it's oftentimes pretty beneficial BiPAP because it reduces the right ventricular preload as well. That's one way. I can prevent a lot of fluid that's already kind of like trying to prevent any more fluid from coming into this congested heart that's barely getting any blood out of it. Second thing I can do is I can have the left ventricle squeeze harder. What did I tell you are those drugs that'll squeeze more blood out of the heart and acute heart failure exacerbations, Rob? Do you remember? Dobutamine, milrinone, and the terrible, deadly, disgusting devil's drug dopamine. Hey, man, positive isotropes all day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So squeeze the heck out of the heart. Digoxin, could you use it here? You could, but it's going to be the least powerful. If the patient's dying, I wouldn't go for that one. I would go with dobutamine or milrinone. And if it's the, you know, the apocalypse, then you can consider dopamine. <laughs> you're crazy. <laughs> you're, oh, you're crazy. Um, so that's one thing. We can reduce the amount of excessive blood preventing the congestion of the heart. We can squeeze more blood out of the heart to get it into the blood vessels and less going into the lungs. We could also reduce the afterload. So we can reduce the amount of pressure that the left ventricle has to overcome to push blood out of it. So we can improve forward flow. So we can get more blood into the blood vessels and less blood into the lungs. So that means I have to dilate. Just be very careful. If I vasodilate an artery, okay, and this patient's blood pressure is dependent upon two things, cardiac output. The cardiac output is literally in the pooper. That means their blood pressure is going to be low. And then the only thing that's probably keeping their blood pressure somewhat at bay is squeezing their arteries. You, re you relax those arteries, you may drop their pressure enough to kill them. 
Okay. So be very careful. So we don't really use the afterload utilizers unless we're going to have a patient who's what? Hypertensive. Unless the patient is extremely hypertensive, I'm probably not going to be grabbing for the vasodilators because I could drop the patient's pressure. If they're normal pressure or if they're hypertensive, this is the best situation. Then get it. You can have patients who have CHF who have um, a very high blood pressure, believe it or not. But in those situations, I could give an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. Just be careful in patients who have renal failure. Okay. I could also, if I have a patient who has renal failure, I could do hydralazine or isosorbidonitrate. Um, one of the ones that I actually prefer to do in a patient who has a hypertensive CHF kind of exacerbation is I like nitroglycerin. So nitroglycerin is a great drug because it's going to be high doses. It'll actually vasodilate those arteries. And then another thing I actually like to give it, I like to do is put these patients on BiPAP. So this is a very subtype of heart failure, acute heart failure exacerbation. It's actually called flash pulmonary edema or sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema where they have t- terrible heart failure and they have difficulty getting blood out of the heart, but it's because their blood pressure is like 220 over 110. Okay. And this patient population, I would reduce their afterload. That is the only time. If they are hypotensive, for the love of goodness, don't use these drugs. You'll kill them. Okay? So hydralazine, isosorbidonitrate, you could consider if they have renal failure. ACE inhibitors, ARBs, you can consider those as another option to reduce afterload. But I like nitroglycerin and BiPAP as really the best option in patients who have a hypertensive CHF exacerbation. If you have the other situation where a patient has medication noncompliance and MI, acute renal failure, they blew their mitral valve or aortic valve, then I'm going to be having these patients. These are the patients that are likely hypotensive. Okay. That's the other. So there's really that one subtype that I want you to remember the hypertensive CHF patient. That's the only one for the afterload reducers. For all the other ones, you're likely going to have the hypotensive patient. So you want to reduce their afterload. You want to increase their contractility and you also want to be able to support their blood pressure. So. One way is I can try to be able to get more blood out of the heart. So that's the inotropes. But here's the problem. With inotropes like dobutamine, like milrinone, okay, and even dopamine, guess what they do to the arteries, Rob? They vasodilate. (laughs) So they do squeeze and push blood out of the heart, right? But they vasodilate a little bit. And so that may reduce your systemic vascular resistance and make the patient more hypotensive. So it's very common to have a patient on dobutamine or milrinone plus a little bit of a presser to squeeze the arteries a little bit. And that'd be something like norepinephrine. Because what you're doing is you're giving the norepinephrine or the epinephrine or the vasopressin a presser to squeeze the arteries a little bit. And then you're giving the dobutamine or the milrinone to squeeze the heart, to push blood out of the heart. So you're trying to increase cardiac output and giving the presser, you're increasing systemic vascular resistance that may reduce the forward flow just a little bit, but it's actually going to keep the blood pressure alive, perfuse their organs and that's probably more important than you know at this point the getting blood flow out of the heart with a cardiac output patient who's got a low ef so again and a patient who has acute heart failure what do i do first thing is think about the categories if they have a hypotensive patient because they stopped taking their meds they infarcted their myocardium they have acute renal failure they blew a mitral aortic valve they're likely going to be hypotensive reduce their preload with diuretics BiPAP, nitroglycerin, increase their contractility with dobutamine or milrinone or dopamine. Do not reduce their afterload, okay? And instead, if you have a hypotensive patient who you're reducing preload, increasing contractility, and you still have their blood pressure a little bit low because you're vasodilating them a little bit, give them a drug that can squeeze the arteries a little bit like norepinephrine and epinephrine or vasopressin. It may not be ideal because, yes, you're increasing the afterload, but you're keeping their pressure up and defending that mean arterial pressure, which is keeping them alive. If the patient is that one type of category where they have the hypertensive CHF crisis, so the flash pulmonary edema, they have the sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema where no blood is getting out of that poor left ventricle because the BP is like 225 over 120, then you are going to do what? You're going to reduce their afterload. Nitroglycerin and BiPAP usually is a pretty good option here. And that's what I would consider. The only other thing I would actually add on here is just be careful. Again, vasodilators like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, hydralazine, isosorbidonitrate. If the patient is hypotensive, just, just hold them. Don't, even though they take them chronically, get, don't, don't do that. If they're hypotensive, take them off of their medication list. Hold them for now. Especially if they have renal failure, hold their hydralazine or their isosorbidonitrate or their ACE inhibitor and ARB. Okay. Hold them. 
If a patient has a very low EF and they're decompensating in their heart failure, hold or maybe just super decrease their beta blocker. Because if you give them a beta blocker, you may drop their cardiac output, drop their actual blood pressure, and again, put them into a cardiogenic shock even worse than what they're in. So if a patient is in acute heart failure exacerbation, you're likely going to have to hold some of those chronic medications like the ACE inhibitor or the ARB or the beta blocker. So just don't forget that, guys. All right, that covers my little soapbox there. All right, awesome, Zach. We finally did it. We made it. We, we got to the finish line. <sighs> it God. is it is so hot in this room. How you feeling? Oh, dude, I think I lost weight sitting in this room, man. It's like a freaking <laughs> sauna in here. You I need a shower? Oh, my gosh. I basically have taken a shower. I just haven't wiped off with a towel yet. This is insane. Uh, I wish we can control this freaking temperature. But I hey, really do, too. You, you just got to work through it, right? So Yeah, we do, we, we do what we got to do, exactly. man. We got to so, fight through it. CHF. Boom, it's done. Roasted. It's roasted. That was a lot of fun. That was so I'm much roasted. information. <laughs> we're both roasted. I think we're about to hit the hour mark here. Yep, we're hitting the hour mark. That was awesome. Yeah, this was a pretty cool podcast. I actually like this one. I think it's something that's really, really applicable to not just like what you need to know for your boards, but I think it's also relatively applicable for the for the wards. So next time you have a patient with heart failure, go out there, use this stuff that we talked to you guys about, and uh, hopefully it helps you to provide some benefit. So Ninja Nerds, we thank you. We love you. And uh, as always, until next time. All right. See you, engineers.